Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead today, we're going to hear about a documentary about Mardi Gras Indians. The documentary went missing and the film was recently discovered. Also, a Ukrainian Christmas folktale about a spider is the basis of a new production being staged by Opera Louisiane this week, this weekend. But first, for the past three years, Jackson, Mississippi has been looking for solutions to urban heat islands. Those are places in the city where temperatures are higher because of uh, buildings and roads that absorb heat. Data shows the hottest areas of that city are usually near neighborhoods that have been historically discriminated against. The Gulf States newsroom's Danny MacArthur heads to one green infrastructure project designed to cool an iconic part of the city. See the main entrance, the fountain of Farish, the fountain on Farish. As you walk along this historic neighborhood, there are a lot of markers that point towards its origins. The African art gallery and gift shop. It was built by people that came out of slavery. There's a funeral home, people's funeral home. Within the confines of Jim Crow laws, they carved out a prosperous black community that lived and worked on Ferris Street. But there's a direct link between that early segregation and practices like redlining to problems this neighborhood is dealing with today. It's much hotter than some other neighborhoods in the region. It's a heat island. Fair Street community members, business owners, climate activists, and architects have been meeting to address this with the city's urban planning department. Hello, everyone. Including Alex Lawson, who is the chair for the Jackson Redevelopment Authority. But before I get to that, I do want to, like I said, take a quick step back. Um, have I shown this group this map before? This group of about 20 looks at a map that illustrates the areas of the United States that have more economic mobility, aka people's chances of improving their economic status. Most of the Gulf South, including Mississippi, is colored red. That means there's a lower chance of getting out of poverty here. You can sum up most of my life with this map. My goal, my solitary objective is to change this map. In Jackson, if you look at that economic mobility data next to the city's heat index, it becomes clear pretty fast that most of the places in town that get the hottest are also the poorest. Um, and this is what people are flocking from Jackson from. This is what they are fleeing. As climate change intensifies, marginalized communities like Fair Street often don't have the resources to adjust. But that could change here soon. Tusi, Mississippi, a climate advocacy group, got federal funding to plant trees and shrubbery on Ferris Street. It's not just for making the neighborhood look pretty. It helps reduce temperatures in cities by providing shade, deflecting sun radiation, and releasing moisture. Frank Figures, a veteran civil rights advocate in Jackson, sees the project as a small part of a big picture strategy of improving the lives of people on Ferris Street. And lowering the temperature could mean saving the life of people or reducing their energy bill and having more money to spend on good food. It's it's connected. This project comes at a time when Jackson and Mississippi overall are experiencing some of the hottest temperatures on record. Under the Inflation Reduction Act, billions have been dedicated to climate action. 2C Mississippi got a small sliver of that one and a half million dollars. And they used it to push projects like this one forward. The heat island mapping campaign was carried out in 2020 in the middle of pandemic. Dominica Perry founded 2C Mississippi, 
She says they partnered with the city of Jackson to collect this data and then started hosting community meetings to design a green space to hopefully help lower the temperature in the Fair Street District. But the process has had its hiccups. Today's meeting was supposed to be the one where they approved a final design. But recently, the city said the land from one of those parcels is actually going to a group of businesses who want to set up shop on Ferris Street. So the group has to go back to the drawing board. And people are upset. I prefer the original. I'm going on record saying I really like it the way it was, not, not the way it changed. Still, Perry says it is important to get the support of Ferris Street community members since it's their project. And so during the meeting, folks hash it out again and decide on a different plan. Once they hope will still meet the requirements for the federal funds and keep them on schedule. They're supposed to get funding at the beginning of 2024, so they can start clearing land and planting in the fall. Dorothy Davis is the president of a community group that represents those who can't make it to the meetings. Even with the changes, Davis is hopeful about what the plan could mean for Ferris Street. She's grown up here, and she sees this project, and all the efforts to revitalize Ferris Street, as bringing back its historic legacy. I guess this means me going back to my childhood, <laughs> because you lived, worked, eat, uh, worship, and died all on Ferris Street, because we even have two funeral homes on Ferris Street. So it was from beginning to ending. She wants this project to be a blueprint for what other cities can do to help their own marginalized communities. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Danny McArthur. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. A 1997 film about the life of a New Orleans Mardi Gras Indian chief is lost no more after producers stumbled across an old DVD copy of it. The documentary is called Testimony of a Big Chief. It tells a story of the late Allison Tootie Montana, who led the yellow Pocahontas black masking Indians for 50 years. Director Will Horton is celebrating this finding with a screening at Loyola University, along with a conversation with producers, Tootie's longtime friends, and even his son, Daryl Montana. To talk with us more about this film, it's Rediscovery, and that event, we're joined by director Will Horton and Daryl Montana. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. You proud us. So, Will, can we start with you? Tell me about the making of this film. How did you stumble across Tootie's story, and what did you learn when you were making the film? Um, growing up in New Orleans, you, you're surrounded by culture, um, uh, various cultures. Uh, Louisiana, what makes Louisiana great um, is a mixture and amalgamation of cultures um, that are blended um, to create subcultures. Um, and out of the black culture uh, is the black masking Mardi Gras Indians. Um, I'm a native New Orleanian, so I've, I've, I've seen the Mardi Gras, masking Mardi Gras Indians all of my life. Um, my initiation with the uh, black masking Mardi Gras Indians is, is out of fear <laughs> and terror. Uh, as a kid, um, if, if you saw the wild man or the, uh, the skull and bones on the street, you know, it, you instantly became a track star. <laughs> mm. uh, as far as the 2D Montana documentary, um, I was I was approached by producers Keith Calhoun and Chandra McCormick. I was actually screening uh, a short film at the Treme Center um, in Treme, and they approached me um, uh, to uh, possibly direct the documentary. Um, I, I agreed to it. 
even though I'm a native New Orleanian, the black mask and Indian, that's a sacred, um, a, a sacred ritual. That's a sacred organization, um, a sacred subculture. So everyone doesn't have access to the black mask and Margaret Indian. So, um, this was a chance for me to learn more about the subculture. I actually, um, got a chance to sit at the Montana's, um, kitchen and watch um, the Montana family create the wonderful art that we get to see on display during Mardi Gras and St. Joseph's Night. And so it was a matter of me coming in with a fresh pair of eyes and just allowing the spirit of Tootie Montana to just, you know, guide my eyes. Daryl, what do you remember about making this film? Your dad was passing the throne to you at the time to take over as big chief. Can you describe that experience as you remember it? Well, um, when you get a chance to see the film, you'll notice a part of it where um, my daddy kind of broke down. It was at the end of the practice. He, we, we were singing the Indian raid. Um, that's our spiritual song. And um, it was like he he had gotten to a point where he couldn't, he couldn't finish that piece. And I just came right there behind him, you know, and filled in um, like I've done... Um, as it relates to dressing, you know, um, my, my daddy, that was his 50th year, and I just celebrated my 50th year this year. Um, and I, I've gone through the same thing, the struggles of when you are basically retiring, that you still have that fire inside of you. And in my daddy's case, his 50th year, he retired, and he came back two years after that. I did 50 and um, was planted on dressing this year, which would have been my 51st year. I want to say this, that uh, I never wanted to do 50. I just wanted to be part of it. Um, I never wanted to be the chief, but my father made me chief. And um, I always say this, that I wear proudly, I am chief. So there are, of course, several Mardi Gras Indian tribes. Daryl, can you tell me about the history of the Yellow Pocahontas Black Masking Indians? What are some of the traditions specific to this group? My daddy was a stickler for keeping it traditional. Um, one thing that we do, uh, different from any of the other tribes, is that um, practice. Practice is supposed to start the very first Sunday after it was uh, 12th night. That very first Sunday after that, that's when practice is supposed to start. And we are, we are and I stick to that. I don't go to other practices uh, throughout the city because they have practices in the summertime. And I always say that that's like Christmas in July. Another thing is this. We also, we, we play tambourines. We don't play bass drums and uh, I've seen times when, when my daddy uh, would hold his practice, uh, guys would come with uh, empty buckets and beating on buckets and, and bottles and stuff like that. Our tribe, basically, our drum is the tambourine, and we try to stick to the, the songs. Perfect example, my daddy was one, he would tell a person if they was changing a song, especially the, the press on Indian radio, um, he would say that you don't change that song. You wanted you want to change something, change that suit, you know. And that was that was that was how he was. He was a stickler for tradition. 
Will, what exactly happened that led to this film being lost for so many years? And can you tell us about that and also how it was rediscovered? What was your reaction when you found out it resurfaced? I can only attribute it to um, that great storm we had in New Orleans, <laughs> um, Katrina. So this is another Katrina story uh, that happened. But thankfully, um, we were able to recover one from the ashes of Katrina and present it to the crowd so the public will finally get to see um, what we experienced as an exhibit, um, the nine-month exhibit, He's the Prettiest in 1997. Uh, featuring Allison Tootie, Montana. This was actually uh, the companion film to the exhibit. That's why it's only 30 minutes long. It's not, it's not full length. Hmm. We're speaking with Will Horton, film director and adjunct professor at Loyola University's Department of Digital Film Studies, and Daryl Montana, chief of the Yellow Pocahontas Black Masking Indian Tribe. We're discussing a newly rediscovered documentary about Montana's father, Big Chief Tootie, Montana, directed by Horton, over 25 years ago. So, Will, now that you're preparing to screen this film at Loyola, what are you hoping your students and the general public will learn, will take away from this film? What I'm hoping is that um, I'm at a university that's in the heart of the city um, on the streetcar line, that this would bring a, a deeper connection um, between the academic world and the, the, the folk artists and the Louisiana subculture. Um, in New Orleans. I'm, I'm hoping that um, what I'm doing is creating a curriculum. I also teach a documentary course. So this film would become part of uh, the documentary curriculum um, at Loyola. And this is pretty much phase one of it. And I'm hoping that students would use this film um, and the panel discussion as a resource and also go out and explore other tribes so that they will learn more about the culture. Daryl, I hear it's been about 18 years since your father passed away. How do you think his memory is preserved in this film? What do you think he would want these students to know about his life? What, what, what stands out to me is that my daddy was a stickler for tradition. You know, you have to keep it. And, and I had a conversation with a, with a young man some time ago, and, um, you know, because I'm considered not elder in it, right? And uh, some of the younger generation um, kind of, you know, they, they kind of feel like, well, you've had your, your head there, but, you know, you have, to, you have to listen to your elders. But I want to say this, as it relates to the, uh, the, the exhibit, King Tut exhibit was at the New Orleans Museum of Art. It was there for, um, for a year, no, six months. And my, my father's exhibit was there for six weeks. And what was amazing to me was that um, the, visit, the visitation uh, attendance was only about maybe 300 visitors short of, of, of King Tut exhibit, which was six months. So it, it, kind, of, it kind of taught us it was that, uh, yes, the community does want to find out and get involved into the tradition because at one time it was a secret. Um, if you was not family or very, very close friend, you didn't get a chance to witness any of this, uh, how it came together. And um, I truly believe that um, having doing having this, this film scene is that it will 
it will kind of spark um, a conversation about, because um, at one time we didn't pass it on. And I have to give credit to a, a, a person, a friend of mine who deceased, not John Scott. He's, in fact, he's in the documentary. Um, during my daddy's era, they really wasn't passing it on. Um, but John Scott taught me um, the importance of passing it on because if if I had not passed it on, or if we would all pass it on, then it dies. My daddy was was a stickler for wanting to make sure that this tradition continues, and hopefully we're doing a great job. Yeah. Daryl Monsanto is chief of the Yellow Pocahontas Black Masking Indian Tribe, and Will Horton is a film director and adjunct professor at Loyola University's College of Music and Media. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. And the screening takes place tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. Seats are reservable at loyola.edu. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. Opera Louisiana in Baton Rouge is premiering a new work this weekend, just in time for the holiday season. The Christmas Spider is based on a Ukrainian Christmas time folktale. To tell us more about what's behind this work, we have with us Catherine Frady, general director, CEO of Opera Louisiana and leading soprano in this production, and John De Los Santos, librettist and stage director of the Christmas Spider. Well, welcome to the, the studio. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, glad to be here. So tell me, what inspired this work and why Opera Louisiane? Yeah, I mean, I'll let John talk about what inspired the actual work, but I just love The Christmas Spider. Uh, Clint Borzoni and his music is beautiful. It's very accessible. It's a wonderful holiday, family-friendly opera that's in English, so it's a great opportunity for people to try out opera for the first time. So this actually stemmed from a phase of boredom during COVID when I said to him, we need we need a project, even if it doesn't get produced right away, because we just we have nothing else going on. And I've always loved the 1960s Christmas specials like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty and Charlie Brown and The Grinch. And I really wanted to write something that emulated that style with great music, a beautiful story, humor, and all about a message of togetherness around the holidays. And I found this Ukrainian legend about the Christmas spider, and I thought, wow, I've never heard of that. The idea that in the Ukraine, if you don't have a spider ornament on your tree, you won't have any good luck for the upcoming year. I said, why don't we do that here? Let's talk about that idea. And we expanded on the legend, which is pretty simple, and came up with this beautiful uh, 45, 50-minute opera. Tell me more about the Christmas spider, because before I read about the performance, I had no clue about this this legend, this folktale. So tell me what what was the inspiration there? Yeah, so essentially it um, is about a single father who has two children at Christmas and they have no money for gifts or an extravagant dinner. They're in really, really dire straits. They can't even pay their rent. And the landlady is threatening to evict them. And uh, the children say, well, even though we have no gifts and we have no ornaments, can we please have a tree? And so the father, who is a woodcutter, goes out and cuts down a tree and brings it into their house. And they discover a large spider lives in that tree. And at first, they're, you know, a little afraid of it. But then the father says, well, we've brought her into our house. It's Christmas. We have to be kind. So really, this is a story about how regardless of what anyone looks like or their beliefs or any preconceived notions, this is a time of year we put that aside and make family with everyone around us. Hmm. 
I understand the American Opera Project and their First Chance program helped make this work happen. Could you tell me about their mission and what they did for Opera Louisiana? Their mission is to present new American works. And one of the great things about what they did for the Christmas Spider for John and, and Clint was that they, they commissioned it and they actually helped to workshop it, Workshopped it um, yeah. to, to get some singers together to kind of like go through the music so that John and Clint could hear actually what they had written um, with live singers. So Opera Louisiana, we reached out to American Opera Projects. They were very, very helpful to us. And uh, so here we are. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I detected this folktale as a story rooted in the idea of resilience and joy. And speaking of Ukraine, it's almost hard two years into the war there to not see connections with those themes. How has that come up as you've been writing and staging and rehearsing the show? It's interesting. So the war had not begun because um, this is about three years ago when we wrote this. So it was all prior to that. And it just happened to be a coincidence to happen. The funny thing is my favorite Christmas carol is Carol of the Bells. And I had no idea that that was a Ukrainian song in origin. And so I thought, my, wow, what a what a interesting coincidence that my favorite carol, can we bring that musically into this somehow? And so Clint and I actually wrote an original carol, Christmas carol, that's part of the score of the opera. And so there are several Ukrainian influences in the music. And it's been interesting talking to the kids and the adults as we workshop this piece and rehearsed it here in Baton Rouge about how those musical influences, we don't even really realize how much Ukrainian music is in the common canon of Christmas holiday music. So that's been interesting to talk about. Interesting. There are so many folk tales from so many different cultures that impart lessons and explain traditions around Christmas. It's almost like Christmas and the winter holidays are a magnet for these folk tales and traditions. So how do you see this story working kind of in conversation with those other traditions from different cultures as you're as you're staging it? You know, I love that it's like a spider, you know, I mean, because Eastern European Orthodox churches celebrate this, the spider, but there's also different like variations of it. And what is cool about it is that it is universal in that way and can reach everybody. And the spider can be Santa Claus. The spider can be Jesus. The spider is who you want the spider to be in this story. And I, and I love that. Mm -hmm. It was also important to me from the very beginning that the opera had children because I am a firm believer in bringing children to the opera, to the symphony, to the theater, having them see themselves represented so that hopefully they will be inspired to pick up an instrument or take voice lessons and leave the theater going, wow, I want to be a part of that. So the two leading roles in this are played by a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. doing a wonderful job. It's an interesting thing looking at the animals and the greenery, the, the flora and fauna that are brought into Christmas time, winter folk tales and traditions when, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, those critters sometimes are a little bit more likely to try and be a guest in your home. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What do you hope that people might walk away from, from their experience with the performance? You know, I hope that they walk away. One is that this is a beautiful opera and that they really enjoyed it and they got a, a nice message from it to be kind to everybody. Um, I hope that they find the characters relatable and I hope that they'll come back and, and experience another opera. The Christmas Spider, it'll be on stage this Friday at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday 3 p.m. at the Manship Theater in Baton Rouge. Catherine Frady, General Director, CEO, Opera Louisiane, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having us. And John De Los Santos, librettist and stage director, first and foremost, thank you for your time, too. Thank you very much. 
And a thank you to our guests today, Will Horton from Loyola University, Daryl Montana from the Yellow Pocahontas Black Masking Indians, and Catherine Freddy and John De Los Santos from Opera Louisiana. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.